Alain Leclerc, welcome to the Canby Report. As Director of Transportation here at the City of Vancouver, what is it you do, just to start? Well, the, uh, the areas of responsibility that sit with me are related to uh, planning, designing, and managing the transportation system. So there are other divisions uh, in the engineering department that have a transportation connection, uh, but they're not uh, related to the movement of people. And just to give you context, that means that there's a, a streets division. Uh, that division is responsible for constructing and maintaining the street assets. We have another brand, uh, division, which is public space and street use, which is uh, responsible for managing all the non-transportation uses on a street, which there are many. <laughs> Film, special events, patios, marathons, film. <laughs> Lots of things we can dig yeah. into there. I want to get into data today and how that's informing a lot of how the city develops its transportation policy. I think a good place to start, though, is what are the kinds of things we're actually measuring that okay. citizens might not realize? Um, the data is fundamental to all the decisions where we're making. Um, what people might not realize is that... Um, uh, say, for example, to get good data, we have to look to sources outside the city often. So it's always been the case that we've had ICBC as a source of information for crash or collision data, uh, VPD uh, for fatalities on the road network. But more recently, in the last uh, three years, we've partnered with VGH in the hospital. Uh, and that's actually been uh, very revealing because on the safety front, um, uh, it turns out a lot of injury that's happening on the road network uh, it doesn't involve a claim for a vehicle, you know. So um, half of the cycling collisions that result in injury uh, don't even involve a car. Uh, and so this is something that the hospital data gives us. So when they have someone checking in an emergency for an injury, they ask them how that happened and they find out it was on our road system, and now we know that there's something to look for, which could be, you know, a badly placed post or uneven surface, um, all those things. For other data, like the parking data, we have to go out and collect that ourselves. Uh, there are new technologies which are allowing us to do that quicker and more efficiently. Uh, counting vehicles, same thing. Counting cyclists, counting um, pedestrians. Uh, through the years, technology is making that uh, easier for us, but uh, access to data is really important. I assume there's some partnership with TransLink to look at compass card data and where people are moving using that? Yes. So um, all of the transit data that we get is from TransLink. So, um, and they've gotten very good uh, recently as well, not only with compass card, which has been really helpful, uh, but automated pe pe people counters on the buses and things like that. A lot of times uh, people with passes um, are not very reliably tapping. You, a lot of people think they're not paying, but in fact, they, they've already paid. It's just when you hold a pass, it's, it's like you kind of think it's not needed. Uh, you always have to have proof of payment on you. So in fact, you probably wouldn't even get a ticket. Uh, but uh, so the, the automated people counters uh, allows them to do annual reviews route by route. Uh, and that is really helpful for us. In the city, I know there's been some look at like the number of cars going across the different bridges across False Creek. Is that mostly counted just manually or with little sensors shooting lasers across the street kind of thing? Uh, we have permanent vehicle counters uh, installed at all the bridges. Uh, we actually have cordons. So the downtown is of particular interest and it's, it is well defined because it's a peninsula. 
Uh, so we have automated counters at all the roads that enter uh, and exit the downtown. So we can get a very accurate number uh, hour, hour by hour. Uh, how many vehicles are entering and leaving the downtown. Uh, just, you know, that was actually a big initiative uh, for us in the lead up to the Olympics um, because we're very concerned about congestion and the amount of activity that was going to be happening downtown. We were basically going to have 30% more people wanting to go downtown and we were going to have to do it with 30% less road space because of all of the security closures on the viaducts and Pacific and Expo Boulevard. And so uh, we were able to, with the automated vehicle counters, after the morning, see how much vehicles had accumulated in the downtown and report that out by 10 a.m., you know, to see if there was any additional messaging we'd have to do. Uh, it worked extremely well. Um, but the legacy is that we have that system in place now. Uh, we also have a cordon around the entire city, so uh, across Boundary Road, and then with the province and the different uh, agencies that own the different bridges uh, that connect over the Fraser, uh, we also have kind of a complete picture of all vehicles entering and leaving the city as well. How much of that data then is made publicly available to, for other agencies? Because I imagine there's a lot of different organizations, individuals who would find that fascinating. Uh, well, that's actually, uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's... Um, it's not easy to assemble this data. What's uh, what's difficult about it is that um, uh, for us to, to kind of mine it uh, for our own purposes is extremely helpful that the data set exists. Um, but as a request, um, you know, it's just a ton of numbers, and uh, people to just take it on uh, and make sense of it is a challenge. And the reason for that, too, is that... Um, not all the counters are 100% reliably accounting. And so there are always uh, a few counters that are in default or are, are broken. And sometimes it takes a little while before we recognize it or correct it. Uh, then we also have to validate. So we do have to go out occasionally and have a physical person or a video or something that can uh, confirm that what the, the detector is counting is, is real. And so for that reason, the data has a lot of holes in it, right. if you know what I mean. And so um, for data scientists, you, they would tell, talk to you about this. It's like you have to clean it up, right? So, so you can't just have, you know, two weeks of no counts on the Burrard Bridge and then have a reasonable number for downtown. You know, you have to figure out a way to fill that hole and, uh, and kind of make the data set um, true as true as it can be. Are there requests to use that data? Uh, we don't have many requests. Uh, we also, but we do have a number of uh, data. Uh, uh, there's a lot of data that we just put on the website. Right. So intersection counts, uh, segment counts. So uh, pretty much every traffic uh, controlled, uh, light traffic signal controlled intersection. We do account uh, about every you know, two to five years. And that information is just on van map. So you can go in and click and check. And, and people always tell me that, oh, the street's like it's way busier. It's like twice as busy as it used to be. Like, and well, let's have a look. <laughs> and uh, people are always like not believing pretty much that the traffic really isn't changing much. You know, in the last 20 years, it's pretty much the same counts on almost every street. It's kind of shocking. And some streets have had some pretty significant decreases. 
across the city, like in the western portion of the city, routes to UBC because of the UPASS program was so successful. Uh, when that was introduced, we saw a big drop. Uh, and then the downtown, uh, the biggest decreases in vehicles is uh, in the routes into downtown. So would you attribute almost all of that just to shifting mode shares, so people going on to transit and bicycles or walking? Yes, that's exactly what's happened. Great. <laughs> so, and the downtown's a good example because uh, in a period where we introduced, say, 20,000 new jobs, we've actually introduced 100,000 new residents. And so uh, the potential for those people to walk to work is really high uh, when jobs and homes are closely located. And, uh, and same with all the other activities that people do. Uh, when there was fewer people living downtown, there was fewer opportunities for people to walk for all their destinations, quite simply. Well, let's maybe dig into some of those different mode share changes and how, pe- how the data is informing that. Cycling is the big you know, news story in Vancouver and just how it, much it's taken off. Mm-hmm. How much has data played a factor in deciding you know, where to prioritize routes, where to upgrade from you know, on-street bikeways to separated bikeways, what's the data told us to do? Yeah, so what's really helpful for us, um, TransLink has a trip diary survey that they do once every five years. We do an annual survey of our residents every fall, and uh, that t- helps us tell um, how people are behaving in different areas. And uh, it's, not, it's not that we can make a direct connection to um, what's available and what's What's the behavior? But there's a there's a clear pattern. For example, um, if you look at the propensity to take transit, you know it might not surprise you that you know along the SkyTrain lines, the propensity to take transit is very very high. <laughs> so the most transit oriented neighborhood in our city is actually around Joyce Collingwood. So those people take transit more than anyone, even the, more than people that live downtown. Um, people live downtown, of course, their propensity to walk is extremely high. Almost half their trips are on foot. Uh, there's, there's this little, there's this ring around downtown, which is Kitsilano, Fairview, um, uh, Grand, Grandview Woodlands, Mount Pleasant, uh, where cycling is really, really high. And, it, and it, again, it kind of speaks to the notion that they're kind of the perfect cycling distance. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our transit system, they're the right at the part where it's busiest. So the busiest segment of the Canada line is from King Edward to Broadway. The busiest segment of the Expo line is from Broadway to uh, Main Street Station. It's hard to get on a train mm-hmm. there in the morning. <laughs> so the, the, the opportunity for cycling is really high. So then what we can, do, we can do is we can look at people's origin destination trips through our surveys. And we can see the ones where the distance is about right, but why aren't they biking, for example? And so then often it's because there's a barrier. You know, and that's the facility itself. And uh, so, like, the number of people cycling over the Granville Bridge, really, 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 really small. And uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's the most brave human beings in the city. <laughs> that's right, because you wouldn't want to send your kid biking over that bridge or, <laughs> or go biking over with your grandma. So, um, so as a result, uh, you can see that uh, that kind of activity is, is – there's, bar- there's a true barrier. Even for walking, uh, that bridge is a barrier. Uh, and so you have high concentration on both sides of residents and jobs – uh, with really low active uh, active transportation across the bridge. 
I know when I lived in Kitsilano, it was often as fast for me to bike downtown, sometimes faster than to get on the buses that were stopping every block in rush hour. In the Metro core, it's it's pretty normal for cycling to be the fastest way to get around. That's a pretty normal thing. It's a, And with the, the network that we've developed, uh, the separated bike paths, uh, it's kind of immune to traffic congestion too. So uh, even the transit system can work really well, uh, but where, uh, we, where we don't have, you know, dedicated bus lanes and things like that, that transit's also stuck in the traffic. And so that's when, yeah, cycling can be pretty reliably faster. <laughs> well, and the other element of that is that zone you mapped out is where the bike share is. It's where Moby is. So I that's imagine right. that's also being a wealth of data for the city as you can it I'm is, assuming seeing where every bike starts and ends. It is an amazing wealth of data. In fact, um, our Moby team just uh, had done some work to to kind of um, extract information out of that, and it's it's been super interesting. Yeah, it's very helpful in our planning. Are there plans to expand the Moby? Network oh yes, for yeah, the, for the, they. Uh, in all directions, uh, south, west, and east. So they're looking at expansions. Uh, and they're also, uh, you know, looking at the potential for e-bikes uh, on the system too, which uh, for the hillier portions of our city is actually really necessary. Um, Fairview is a, a good example of a really hilly neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, that on- infamous Ontario bikeway. Yeah. Uh, in terms of other impediments to cycling, then do you think there's anything beyond the infrastructure, like possibly the helmet law or other things that the city should be pushing for changes to make it more accessible for people? Uh, for the the other things that uh, we're typically doing to make cycling work better is thinking about the end-of-trip facilities, the storage locations, the parking, uh, trying to, to fix that. Uh, with new buildings, there's a lot of requirements for good end-of-trip facilities. So new buildings will have some pretty nice bike parking and showers and lockers uh, if you're fortunate enough to, to, to work in a new building. But the older buildings don't have a lot of that. So we are looking at how we can get you know bike centers in, in to areas of the city where you know it's just not going to happen for a long time in the downtown or the downtown east side where um you know we probably see more people cycling if they had a really good safe place to store the bike sort of and like the garages at some translink stations that's right just tap in and that's right and so that's a good storage place where you can feel pretty safe that your bike's not going to be stolen or, or wreck or vandalized uh but the end of trip facilities also often important you know just a chance to change your clothes or you know check your hair or shower up <laughs> uh, i was thinking wash the bike i was like this is fancy oh, yeah. <laughs> moving from bikes to cars then we talked about the bridges a little bit but one of the interesting things one of our listeners pointed out was in the data it seems to show that all three of the false creek bridges carry about the same number of cars despite their dramatically different designs was that a surprise to you and how do you sort of like manage that flow. Yeah, no, it's not been a surprise because I've been working in transportation for 22 years. <laughs> and uh, those bridges have always moved around 60 to 65,000 vehicles a day. Uh, that's almost been a constant. And so, uh, and the fact that each of all three of them do the same number is a bit interesting. And what's even more interesting, it's the same as the Lionsgate Bridge. Right. So, <laughs> which can't move people. So that's, uh, you know, the three lanes on the Lionsgate Bridge is moving as many vehicles as the eight lanes on the Granville Bridge, or the four lanes on the Burrard Bridge, or the five lanes on the Canby Bridge. <laughs> so um, what it speaks to me is just that there's a lot of opportunity on, on a bridge like Granville, uh, where... Um, 
not only is there uh, no change in traffic volumes over 20 years, uh, except maybe a slight decrease, but there's no ability to actually put more cars onto the bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, the the actual intersections, uh, both in south and north of the bridge, are the limiting factor. You know, it's Howe and Seymour, and it's Granville, South Granville, uh, Helmkin and, and Fur. Like, these streets can only move that many cars, which is why the bridge is only going to ever have 65,000 yeah. cars a day. So, yeah, the the exciting part there is that, wow, you know, that's a lot of bridge deck <laughs> that could be used a little more efficiently. So you can turn to the data when people express their fears about the Granville redevelopment. Oh, yeah. In fact, the yeah, it's, a, it's an easy um, uh, case to argue because by making, reallocating some of that unused uh, truly unused road space uh, on the on the deck to walking and cycling will allow us to move more people over the bridge. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we could have 6,000 cyclists a day like we have on Burrard over the Granville Bridge, that actually might have some people move, getting out of a car, which actually will truly help uh, people driving over the bridge, <laughs> which is counter to what they might think, though, right? Yeah. You know, they might think that uh, removing the lanes would make it worse for driving, but it prob- probably has more likelihood that it would make it better for driving. Well, in the other place in town where transit or driving is going to see, I think, a big change is with the closure of the viaducts once mm-hmm. that comes through. So where are those cars going to go? Well, again, the, uh, the, it's... Um, uh, people might think we're just demolishing the viaducts and that's that, but that's not what the plan is. The plan is to replace the viaducts. So the replacement uh, network actually works better than the existing viaduct network. And it's because, uh, so the replacement Georgia viaduct is shorter and it connects to Pacific and Pacific becomes two-way. Uh, for that whole area of the downtown, uh, poor connectivity is is the the nature of it today, actually, it's uh, it's one-way streets and the crazy route that you have to take. Like if you're, you know, leaving the new casino, right. you can only go one way. And guess what? You can't get to Georgia. No, you have to go all the way to Abbott, and then you have to turn left onto Pender. And you know, like yeah. if you were trying to go from that casino to or that you know conference there to another hotel downtown, it's a pain. Uh, the Renu Road Network works better for that. Uh, same for Dunsmuir. Dunsmuir gets replaced by a new viaduct or a new bridge, if you want to call it, uh, but it's just for walking and cycling. Uh, and our ability to better connect it to the bike network is huge. So the, the Dunsmere Viaduct today works really well uh, for people coming in on Ontario or Adnac. But if you, Adnac Bikeway does a nice connection right onto it. Uh, Ontario does not. So if you're coming up Ontario, our sec- probably our second busiest bike route after uh, Adnac, uh, you go past Science World and there is no easy way. Now you're having to deal with the road network as, as it is poorly connected to the downtown. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting thing for the area as it develops to... Right now it's not really a destination. You know, there's, a, there's just a bunch of vacant land there. And, uh, but when we add you know, millions of square feet of development, a million square feet of commercial space, of water, 18 waterfront restaurants and a new destination park, uh, it will be a place that people want to go. <laughs> and then, then people would see how poorly connected it is to the downtown. One of the things I've noticed when I drive through Vancouver, not at rush hour, but on a general day, talking about connections and getting through easily, 
and maybe it's a myth, but maybe you can confirm it. But there's a rumor that you can get from Whistler to the airport without hitting a red light <laughs> because of the timing of the lights downtown and a number of others. You have to hit it all right, and it doesn't usually work because of some of the other sides. But are the lights all timed intentionally like that? And they are. Continue to they are that? coordinated. Yes. Um, Yes, I've I've actually experienced it myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the but, mystical uh, smooth drive through Vancouver, which is <laughs> like what? But uh, well, actually, for me, like I live downtown, uh, uh, like near Richards and Pacific. So yeah, going from north, like Deep Cove, mm-hmm. I've had times when I come on Seymour Parkway, over the bridge, along McGill, onto Dundas, Powell. Those signals were all coordinated up water. Uh, straight up Richards, Richards one-way street southbound, you know, eight traffic signals, all of them are coordinated too. So they're coordinated for the driving speed. So um, that means you probably shouldn't speed, but because <laughs> you'll get to the red light before it's turned green. <laughs> so you should take your time. Uh, but uh, yes, and the signal timing and coordination is different for different times of the day too. So uh, your scenario, uh, it's hard on two-way streets to do simple coordination. Right. Um, so Granville and Oak, as an example, those are two-way streets. Mm-hmm. You sort of have to pick a direction that you want to coordinate for, uh, right. otherwise it doesn't work. So um, uh, for those two streets, you know, inbound in the morning and outbound in the afternoon, we would favor a signal timing that supports that traffic direction. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. For your, for your example, that's, and it also, is there a stadium event? You know, yeah. like what else is going on that would make us adjust the signal timing? And is there, I have to assume there's efforts being made to start coordinating with buses and making sure that as, as TransLink rolls out rapid bus, that there's additional efforts being made to make sure they, those are getting through faster. That, that's right. And we've had a few experiments in the past. We, we had um, signal preemption on Granville when we used to have the 98B line on Granville before we replaced it with the Canada line on Canby. And uh, it, was, uh, it was not really showing too much good performance. We also did another uh, trial on Main Street. It was called Main Street Showcase. We did all those, uh, you know, the, sig- the signs that tell you when the next, next bus is arriving. Uh, and we had unconditional and conditional priority for, for buses. And again, it was really hard to to measure any real benefit. So, uh, but I think the technology is getting better now that we're doing 41st Avenue, we're looking at new ways to to kind of create priority for buses. Um, So I think we'll continue that work. We'll continue continue to do that. Well, and the other challenge at intersections is pedestrians who walk at very different speeds at all different times. What do you actually do to measure? Like, how do you actually know how fast people walk across intersections, I think is the first question. Okay, so we uh, we use a walking speed rate, uh, which is broadly adopted across Canada. Uh, it was actually just slowed. So, <laughs> so um, with the aging population uh, and concern for people with mobility challenges, uh, we want to give a little more time for people to cross. <clears throat> so the standard rate uh, that we use, so it's you measure the crosswalk length, mm-hmm. and uh, that while the walk man or the walk symbol is up, yeah. um, of course you can start walking at any time. When the flashing hand goes up, that's that's when the remaining time left is, if you just started, you can make it across. 
based because on you're that, not supposed to enter the intersection when the flashing when, hand after is going. when the flashing hand you better not enter the intersection <laughs> 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 now i know that people do and they really really shouldn't it would be uh it's one of those things that uh if people didn't do that, our tra- transportation system would work a lot better. And the, the All this stuff would work so much better if people <laughs> just followed the rules, right? Uh, I know. It would be <laughs> really, really nice. Um, but yeah, it is one of those things where it's, it's also the, the success in walk in our city is really, really high. You know, we've, uh, we've seen um, new neighborhoods get built like Olympic Village. We've seen... Um, you know, neighborhoods become more and more popular, like Main Street and, and all along Central Broadway here. Uh, new shopping, mm-hmm. like destination shopping being introduced uh, throughout the city. And th- what that does is it creates a lot of pedestrians. Mm-hmm. And so the, the same streets that used to move the same amount of traffic 10 years ago are actually not functioning as well because of pedestrians. Right. And it's just because the crosswalks, even where a crosswalk never had a pedestrian. Sometimes they never did, right? So a right turn or a left turn, all they had to do was look for other vehicles. And when those vehicles were clear, they made the turn. Uh, Now, that is so rare, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like out here at Camby and Broadway, this intersection before the Canline opened was a really sleepy intersection. And uh, you almost never had anyone on the crosswalks. Uh, now, of it's course, of it's a flood of people. You're, you're joined by another hundred people walking with you. That motorist is not able to make that turn until the very last minute of the, the walk phase when the crosswalk has cleared. And so, yeah, that, that actually is, is slowing traffic quite a bit. There has been talk about moving to more scramble crosswalks to try to clear the pedestrians and then give the cars a chance to go. And I know Vancouver's in the process of trialing a couple of those. How are those going? Well, we have one in place right now. Uh, it's actually not exactly a scramble, but it works very similar to that. Um, it's called an all-walk phase at, at Robson and, and Hornby. And so, um, yeah, so here there's a, another good example where the pedestrian volumes on Robson are extremely high. Mm-hmm. And so Robson Street, for traffic coming from the west... And the only movement that you can do is turn left onto Hornby. Mm-hmm. And if the crosswalk is just full of people all the time, <laughs> you can never make that turn. And so we would get one vehicle per yeah. light cycle. One, you know, like, and the whole light cycle takes a minute. So, um, yeah, by doing uh, an all-walk phase, we kind of, we can create phases which are kind of all vehicle movement phase. Right. So we have... Um, the vehicles on Hornby, then vehicles on Robson, and then all walking. And so it removes the conflict between the, the driver and the pedestrian. So th- those can be good. When I say that's not really a scramble, because it's a T intersection, it's really right. connecting to a plaza. So the, the interest in the diagonal movement mm-hmm. isn't really there, right? You're kind of walking on this side, or you're walking on that side. And uh, whereas scramble usually refers to going, being able to go on the diagonal. Yeah. yeah. Are we looking at testing a true scramble elsewhere in town? Or? Well, the, in that location, that's a test right now. It was like the all-walk phase uh, without the scramble in place mm-hmm. is something we could just do by modifying the signal timing. So it allows us to see how that works. Uh, we're going to be coming along uh, next year to build the Robson Plaza permanent, which is actually going to have us go into that intersection and rebuild it. So we might introduce a, a scramble at that location, uh, depending on how this, this little experiment works. Uh, same with the other intersection, which is related, which is Robson and Howe. Um, 
There's another T intersection that's got a lot of potential, which is Seymour and Cordova. Um, for the typical intersections, like, say, Burrard and Georgia, to introduce uh, a pedestrian scramble or a diagonal crosswalk would really remove a lot of green time for traffic, and that would be noticeable. <laughs> <laughs> so You're sitting uh, there for three minutes. You, you would, uh, well, it would jam up a lot of the downtown like georgia is already a challenge for us there's a you know a dedicated bus lane for outbound um we want georgia and Burrard to work really well uh and that that kind of pedestrian advantage would come at a real big cost to to transit uh one of the other things people were interested in on transit was the streetcar network and how that was so popular during the olympics and now that rail that's actually pretty close to here, still mm-hmm. sits vacant. Yeah. Has, this is kind of a translink question, but it's also a city of Vancouver question. Has the plans of the Broadway subway kind of put that streetcar on hold? Well, it was always uh, an issue that we have a top priority for transportation, yeah. and it is the Broadway subway. And it's only because that corridor is so busy. It's like, it's busy on a scale that you should have had a line in probably 15 to 20 years ago was when that train should have been in place. Um, We're moving 110,000 people a day on buses. It's almost as much as the entire LRT network in Portland is being moved on Broadway transit. So we we have to create a priority, and we have to say the number one priority, and that was Broadway. Uh, At the same time, though, it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily work on other things at the same time. And so uh, TransLink has a good approach to that, too. I think that this last go-round with the, the, the current 10-year investment plan allowed for things like that to be explored. And uh, even though it identified the investments it was going to make, that it was certain it was going to make, like the Broadway subway, um, it also said that if a business case could come up, uh, we they don't want to stand in the way of that. And the business case for a streetcar is probably pretty good. Uh, it's one that, you know, if we do another go-round with them, uh, because there's so many people that would take it, like these are new to transit trips, there's a revenue generation, especially it's kind of, so, it's kind of a tourism recreational attraction as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so it's not just people with bus passes already getting better service, if you know what I mean. That, that's, that's a kind of yeah. a different scenario. Similar to the SFU gondola. Yeah. You know, um, the project has a lot of crazy benefit. Um, and then it also has this tourism recreation appeal um, that uh, could see a lot more people taking transit just to, because it's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to convince our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, let's turn our mind to the future Data is clearly going to inform a lot of the future plans of the city of Vancouver. I guess one of the big things that's going to start coming out, and this is what I talked a lot with Andrew McCurran over at TransLink about, was self-driving cars and the autonomous connected network that presents. Is the city of Vancouver ready for that? Uh, We are uh, preparing ourselves. We actually had a successful submission for a grant from the federal government to explore automated and connected uh, technology. 
uh, in city services. So we're working with all the cities, including TransLink, because there's a whole bunch of cities across Canada that are very concerned and interested to bring in uh, city policy in advance to make sure that, you know, all the great progress we're making in transportation isn't undone, you know, by... So we want to maximize the benefits and minimize the disbenefits of any new technology. So there's one piece that's going on, which is that coordination uh, for what do we need to do in city policy to help guide this uh, in the right direction. Uh, but the other thing that we're doing, which is, I think, more interesting, is the uh, automated and connected technology in city services. And so... Um, um, it would be kind of like the example of, is there some automated or connected vehicle technology that could help the garbage man with the garbage truck? Mm. Like there's, there's a simple one, right? Uh, so often they have to get in a car and drive forward a bit, jump out, deal with something. And uh, you could see an application where that could really help, actually, and uh, maybe improve safety. Uh, and improved the quality of service that we can deliver. Uh, in, in Parks Board, you know, already automated uh, lawn mowing, um, you know, uh, semi-automated technology in our emergency vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a lot of potential there. It's, it's, like, uh, it's not like they're driverless because they still need, the person's sure. really important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't want a driverless police vehicle without a policeman in it. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> Because the point is the police It policeman. just pulls up and asks the criminal to get in. <laughs> Would you please get in? <laughs> no, it's... Uh, but it, it, could, it can prevent them from collisions that we're seeing out there, right. right? There's a lot of vehicle damage and a lot of collisions that are occurring on in our equipment, uh, which could be avoided using some of this technology. So I think that's pretty exciting. Could you tie some of a uh, like smart emergency vehicle, fire truck, ambulance, or mm -hmm. police car into the traffic light network to turn them all red so you stop having everyone... All of that, yeah, so that's a connected technology. So the connected vehicle connection is vehicle to vehicle, but also mm -hmm. vehicle to infrastructure. Yeah, and that's where, um, yeah, our own systems, as we continue to modernize, uh, opens up more and more potential with the new technology. And I imagine that requires also a lot of work within the region, so that Burnaby, uh, Richmond, the cities that we share borders with, are working on the same. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Our, you know, our region has had autonomous trains for 30 years. <laughs> I think that our region is particularly well suited for that. You know, it's interesting that 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 technology hasn't been taken up more places because mm -hmm. it's actually extremely efficient. You know, it gives a really great headway and uh, really reliable service. I think London, England is looking at automating the underground, but that requires a lot of negotiations with existing unions and things like that's that. That's right. And let so, alone the infrastructure. That's challenges. right. Uh, Toronto too, though. Uh, right. So Toronto is uh, is looking like they'll definitely embark on that. Um, the potential for Toronto is to increase capacity by 25%, you know, on the young line. And that, that, that line is chronically overcrowded right now. So One of the other challenges that's going to be upcoming is the electrification of so much of our city. You know, the province has announced no new gas-powered vehicle sales after 2040, and Vancouver, I imagine, already has a very high pickup of zero-emission vehicles. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to prepare for an electric vehicle city? Uh, that's a big, big part of our work right now. Um, it's, uh, again, new buildings are easy because you can make the requirements that all the parking spaces need to be, um, you know, 
EV ready. Uh, retrofitting old buildings is a harder part. Uh, the city can play a big role, though, um, by um, actually making more public charging facilities available so that uh, you know people who live in apartments or homes without a garage or things like that, that there's a place where they can, can do a, a quick charge. Whether it's part of their trip, you know, say they're going shopping in Yaletown or something like that, or going to a restaurant, that they could charge while they're doing their thing, or whether they do it as a, you know, oh, now time to fill up, yeah. you know, and there's a purpose of the trip, which is just to go for EV charging. I mean, the the, uh, the climate emergency response that our council just adopted this spring um, identified big move number three, which is that half of all the vehicle kilometers traveled in the city would be by electric vehicle mm-hmm. by 2030. Um that will be a big challenge, and it means that we'll probably have to ramp up a lot of what we're doing in that area. We'll re- be reporting back to council. We have 18 months to kind of figure out the strategy right, to the achieve <laughs> that. That's right. The big moves, that, that climate emergency response had 56 mm-hmm. early actions, and those are we're doing them all right now. Like right. Those are on progress. They're funded. They're staffed. We have, a, we have a plan to just do all of those. The, big, the six big moves are big old question marks. We don't know how you do these, <laughs> yeah. but uh, in order to get to that greenhouse gas emissions outcome, these are required. You know, so it's a, it's a task for us to, to get on right now. Uh, just to circle back to one thing on parking that I know a lot of people of, among our listeners are always interested in, I could have asked this much earlier, as people are moving out of cars as they move into Vancouver, are we looking at reducing parking requirements for new developments? Uh, Absolutely, yes. And repurposing, I guess, old empty parking spots. Yeah, so in our Transportation 2040 plan, there's a whole bunch of directions on this exact issue, um, which is, you know, we... uh, we we want to provide the right amount of parking when it's there, but at the same time, as you say, if if it becomes less and less used, is the space repurposable? So um, that's a challenge for a lot of buildings where, yeah, the, the actual parkade has a low ceiling, it's sloped, it's uh, it's actually hard to find uh, new uses for it. Uh, but for new buildings going forward, that would be the case. Um, but the other thing that we're doing, which is helping that whole scenario, is the considering parking as a district resource. So uh, so the downtown, um, we just uh, last year uh, adopted a change to the parking bylaw, which eliminates the minimum uh, for parking downtown. So a new development can come in and only provide the wheelchair parking or the handicapped parking and a passenger zone and no parking whatsoever, provided they do all these other things. So, and they're pretty Typical things, you know, the end-of-trip facilities for cycling have to be amped up. And, like, there's there's all these things that they do which are going to help people get to their building without a car. But the reason we could do that is because when we looked at the entire downtown, um, you know, the parking availability is really, really high. You know, we're only at about 65% occupied. So there's a lot of ability for the existing parkades to continue to absorb new cars as people, you know, might move into that building that has no parking underground, but they lease a space in the building across the street from them. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that. So we can, it, it felt really safe for us to, to introduce that because we thought it would take a long time before anything could go wrong. <laughs> How do you measure the amount of unused parking there is in a big area like downtown where you have such a mix of private spaces, commercial spaces? Well, the the great thing is that um, the city is a big owner of parking downtown. So through Easy Park, 
So some of the biggest parkades in the downtown are owned by the city, uh, including the one under Pacific Center, right. you know, and that's like thousands of parking spaces. So we have a good idea of how occupied that is because of our relationship with Easy Park. Um, but in addition to that, anytime we want to find out the other parkades, it's just a matter of asking if they'll share that information. And if they don't share it, you can always observe. Right. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot of work. You just go there at the peak hours and you see, count how many empty spaces there are. And yeah. That's, <laughs> so that's a summer intern job? <laughs> yeah. And, and also pr- pricing is a, you know, the, the reality is no one wants the empty parkade downtown. Mm-hmm. If you know what yeah. I mean. So uh, Easy Park, uh, because it's priced competitively, it's not that different from all the other parking lots. You know, they're all about the same amount full because if you lower your rates, of course, you're going to get fuller mm-hmm. and the neighbors will get less full. <laughs> yeah. Markets work sometimes very well. In terms of pricing, though, one of the other things being looked at region-wide is congestion pricing. Is that something Vancouver's looking at, thinking about? Is it still sort of in the planning, see where everyone else is going phase? Right now, we've uh, we've had successive councils that express strong support for that. It's in our it's in our transportation twenty forty plan. Um, uh, it's something that we feel would be a real solution uh, to congestion in the region. Um, so uh, whether or not we it's something that we might consider. Uh, in, say, our updates to our plan, how do we achieve the big moves in climate emergency? What about city plan? Um, there are prob- there's starting to be more and more ways of doing this. And so uh, it's something I think we'll be continue open and interested in exploring. Um, even right now, you know, we've done there's so much competition for the curb space downtown. We've, uh, we've started to charge in different ways for different zones. And I can see us expanding that. So the oversubscribed tour bus zone in front of Canada Place, right. where we had a fatality uh, uh, last year, is a real tragedy. Um, there's like too many buses that are trying to use the 100% tourism location in the city. And so what we brought in was a permit system. And the permit system says that uh, the tour bus operator can purchase access to that curb like mm-hmm. you, so that they can stop there for one day, and it's twenty dollars, right. or for one season, and it's like I think it's three thousand dollars or something like that, and it has solved the problem. Tour and the tour bus industry is happy about it too right. because it's cleaned it up, uh, and the ones that know that they need to use it or they know that they have to go to their customers. So for pa- so I could see that uh, doing this, doing that more for you know other zones like uh, commercial loading zones. Again, the, the vehicle has the right to park there while they're doing loading activity, but there's even a time period that they're allowed to be there, and they could go for lunch, and maybe they're not loading anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it, sometimes it just takes a teeny amount to motivate people to, yeah. to kind of move along. you know. And so, yes, congestion pricing, has, I think, has that ability. Well, and relating to that on parking, has there been looks at modifying parking meters to be more time of day? And I think this is something San Francisco does where... The, or not even time of day, but network the parking meters. So the fewer spots they are, the higher the price goes. Yeah, so um, we've done a huge modernization in the way that we manage uh, curbside rates, parking rates for meters, and that was done three years ago. Uh, we changed the bylaw which d- it d- so that it directs us. And, it, and the reason 
we did it this way was so that it would be very much market driven. So um, in the past, you know, you have a hunch that an area would benefit from parking meters because it's overparked, right? And so a new place like Olympic Village gets established and, oh my gosh, you can never find a parking space. Oh, right. maybe we should start charging for parking. That gets some of the cars into the, you know, into their other options like their underground parking. Um, but we'd have to go to council all the time. We have to go to council to to introduce new parking meters. Right. And we'd have to go to council on every rate change, every single rate change. So now the new bylaw directs us to implement pay parking when the streets are oversubscribed, you know, and the, yeah. like basically you can, if there's no parking availability mm-hmm. on a regular basis and that we do that through surveys. Um, we split the, um, uh, the day into uh, daytime and evening. Uh, kind of recognizing that the demands are really different. And if you think of the downtown or, or the case where downtown is really high demand in the daytime, but quite low demand in the evening. And then other places are the opposite. And some places are high demand all times, right. like uh, Yale Town or Gastown. Have high demand in the evening and high demand in daytime. <laughs> it's like, but uh, what what it directs us to do is that we have to survey all of these block faces. Um, they're, if they're over eighty five percent parked, we have to increase the rate by a dollar an hour. If they're under sixty uh, percent parked, we have to decrease the rate by a dollar an hour. So you see rates adjusting on an annual basis all across our cities. So we have ten thousand muted parking spaces, and you can see daytime and evening are changing, and it's because, you know, popular restaurant just opened here. You know, this this area is kind of falling out of favor or whatever, right? So it kind of changes over a broad trend rather than some of the more, I think, technologically connected ones that might that's right. do it automatically. That's right. Uh, we're, I mean, we'll probably get to a place where you're talking about, which allows us to be much more dynamic uh, because the, the new pay stations uh, allow for that. Our current meters, the rates, the way that they're set on there, they're, they're old and, you know, it's like you wind them and <laughs> that's right and you have to change the labels and all of that stuff. But the new uh, pay stations would allow us, say, for example, to also anticipate, so, okay, there's going to be a big event at the BC Play Stadium to, to bring the rate up at that time so that the street's not overparked. Uh, oddly enough, our goal on, on um, parking is to have a parking space available on every block in the entire city. That's good service. (laughs) The way that you achieve it is with a a charge. The amount that we make off it is totally unknown and totally dependent on people's interest in parking. (laughs) Well, we only have a couple minutes left, so I'll maybe just turn it over to a couple just more, I don't know, things that are more of interest to you. We talked a little bit about the climate emergency plan. Was there other elements of that that touch transportation that are really interesting that well, there's, should know about. Yeah, there's two other big moves. So transportation is responsible for 38% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the city. So it shouldn't be surprising that transportation is a big part of the solution. Um, and three of the six big moves are transportation. The first one, though, is more land use. So it's walkable city. And the, the idea there is that 90% of your daily needs could be met with on foot. And so... Um, that's a more of a, it's more of a land use direction than it, but it has a transportation outcome, which is very good. So it says that uh, oh, this neighborhood is missing a grocery store. 
we got to put a grocery store there so that people can walk to it. They're missing a dentist's office or whatever, right? To, you know, so there's all the needs that a, a person has, banks and coffee shops and all that stuff. And uh, it should be spread across the city in a way that people always ha- are within a walk of that. That's big move number one. Big move, move number two is advancing our 2040 target to 2030. So uh, walk, bike, transit, 60, uh, two-thirds walk, bike, transit mode share, in 2040, we would want that to happen in 2030. So, again, that's um, we're we're on track to meet that target ahead, anyways, right? So you could see that we had met our 2020 target early, um, and we were definitely on track to meet the 2040 target early. So we have a bit of work to determine based on the current uh, our current progress. Where when would we expect to meet that that target? And that might have been say. 2037 or something like that. So then the gap would be, how do we bring that to target up to 2030? So, so that's exciting for me. Um, I mean, the one thing that uh, I think is also exciting is that our our past performance and our trends are really really strong. Like the uh, the f- and I don't know why it's so different in Vancouver, but you know the like transit ridership is down pretty much all across Canada and the U.S. except Vancouver. Um, Vancouver C continues to see strong growth uh, in terms of the total walk bike share like I, I, the statistics came out from Stats Canada and we used to be number three in Canada for walk bike transit now we're number one you know that is a big jump in a very short period that's 10 years of incredible mode shift and so and, and everything that we're doing I can see it only continues to support that you know more than ever, housing is being built next to transit. Like, more than ever. <laughs> um, you just have to look at the, even the suburbs. Like, the, the suburbs are creating cities uh, at towns, at uh, SkyTrain stations, and we're seeing great performance with the bike network. So, you know, it's a sense, uh, you know, it's a daunting task to look at how we close the gap and get it all to happen sooner. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very hopeful that that's going to be achievable in a way that people find it enjoyable. I think that's all pretty optimistic. The one last question I think I'll ask is, what's one bit of data that you've seen across the transportation file that's most surprised you about this city? The hospital data is the most surprising. It is it is very revealing. Um, you know, the number one people way that people hurt, get hurt is falling. Right. <laughs> so uh, trips, uh, you know, smooth sidewalks and... These things are actually really, really important, especially for older people. A fall can be devastating. For cycling, surprising thing to me was that um, dooring. Mm. Number one way that cyclists are injured is people are opening the door without the car door, without looking for a cyclist. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the, the hospital day was intriguing to me yeah. for, that, for that. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. You're welcome.